as a society, what we view as a normal weight is really skewed. I have lots of patients that I, I talk to them and I say, really, a lot of your problems are going to go away if we can get your weight down. And they look at me and say, oh, what do you mean? I, I, I'd look skinny if I was 15 pounds lighter. And I have to point out to them, that's not really the case. You know, when we're when two thirds of the general public is, is overweight, it skews what, the, what normal really is and what normal should be. Welcome to Finding Your Wellness, a podcast brought to you by the Columbia Association. I'm Dr. Harry Oaken, a community physician for over 35 years and the Columbia Association's medical director. I am very proud to be working with the Columbia Association for over a decade, assisting them in their mission to improve the health and wellness of our community. Today, our podcast is focusing on a huge problem, and unfortunately, it's only getting worse. The current estimates show that one out of three Americans will develop diabetes sometime in their lifetime. Diabetes is a chronic, long-lasting health condition that affects how the body turns food into energy and results in too much sugar in the bloodstream. Over time, this can cause serious health problems and damage vital organs like the heart and the kidneys and the nerves. Most people who have diabetes have a shorter life expectancy than people without the disease. Diabetes in the United States affects over 37 million people of all ages. About 11% of our population is diabetic. And almost 100 million adults, more than one in three, have prediabetes, which is where we really want to focus on today, the prediabetic state. Diabetic complications are increasing for young adults between the ages of 18 to 44 and middle-aged adults between the ages of 45 to 64. It's more common among American Indians, Alaskans, Native Alaskans, non-Hispanic Blacks, and Hispanics and Asian people. Nearly one in five adolescents ages 12 to 18 and one in four young adults aged 19 to 34 have prediabetes. And we'll focus on prediabetes a little bit more and talk about that. So our focus will be to discuss how to avoid diabetes since it begins typically in a progression that relates to being either over fat, overweight, or obese. I am happy to have a member of our medical advisory board who is an absolute expert on this. He's a community endocrinologist, Dr. Mark Courier. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Courier. First of all, I've known him since he was a kid. I guess that dates me. He graduated from the University of Notre Dame summa cum laude and then was part of the Navy ROTC program. He then attended the prestigious Medical School, Washington University in St. Louis, and then completed his internal medicine residency at the National Naval Medical Center in Bethesda. And he served on active duty and was in the reserves. And he completed his service at the rank of commander. His active duty assignments included being chief resident. He was a staff internist as an attending physician. And he worked in the United States Congress and Supreme Court to be their doctors. He's also an assistant professor at the Uniformed Services University. And following his Navy career, he completed his fellowship and training at Hopkins. He's board certified in internal medicine and endocrinology and diabetes and metabolism. And I think he's still working as a faculty member at Johns Hopkins. Mark, it's great to have you here. Thanks for being. Thank you, Harry. It's very great to be here with you and looking forward to talking about these important topics. So, Let's talk a little bit about this progression of normal people becoming maybe overweight or what I sometimes refer to as overfat, which I define 
as when their abdominal girth measured at their belly button is greater than half their height. And tell us about the mechanics of how this all develops. What's going on in the body? So you hit on it in the introduction. I think as Americans, we have a weight problem, a huge weight problem. You know, two-thirds of Americans are overweight or obese, which by you know using some simple math, that means only one-third of Americans are of the appropriate weight. When we carry too much, too much fat on our, our frame, fatty tissue or adipose tissue isn't very responsive to insulin. So when we talk about the epidemic of, of diabetes and prediabetes, it's all driven by weight. You know, we spend too much time in front of computers, too much time eating high calorie, you know, dense foods, not enough time moving and exercising. And, you know, as we start to put on weight, that weight really promotes insulin resistance or, you know, put it in simpler terms, your body not responding to the insulin that your pancreas is making. This starts out slow and subtle, but left unchecked, this will progress and it progresses to slightly high blood sugars, then higher and higher blood sugars, and then to full-blown diabetes. Left unchecked over time, when people are resistant to insulin, they put their pancreas at a disadvantage and the pancreas has to work really, really hard to overcome that insulin resistance. And, and then we can get to a point where we're resistant to the insulin we're making and, and we're deficient in insulin. We don't make enough. And then it becomes a very complex problem that you really want to avoid. So keeping a normal weight or a healthy weight stops us from getting on that dangerous road. You don't want to get to the end of that road. So we should really help our, our listeners a little bit in talking about maybe the two types of diabetes, because type one, which we don't see very often in adults, makes up a very small fraction, is relatively uncommon. But then, as you were saying, over time, if your diabetes is out of control and you exhaust your pancreas, your pancreas can't make any insulin. So that's when we have to give insulin. But make some comments about where we are for your general adult onset diabetic, because they're not taking insulin. Correct. Exactly what you stated is perfectly correct. So, you know, about 95% of the diabetes cases are, are type 2 diabetes. These are typically diagnosed in adulthood. These are patients that are overweight, that at the start of their disease do not require insulin. You know, only about 5% are patients who, who have autoimmune disease, have type 1 diabetes, where their pancreas is being attacked, and they just need to go on insulin right away. It's a different beast. We're really focusing on the type 2 diabetes patient, that, that adult patient. And unfortunately, I say adult, but unfortunately, this is happening far too commonly in teenagers and young adults and adolescents. If we go back 50 years ago, 1% to 2% of the American population had diabetes. Now, the estimates are about 10 and a half percent. And that is all driven through weight. Now, when I practice as an, as an internist, I saw lots of type 2 diabetes patients. And most of those patients were at the beginning of that, you know, insulin resistance, you know, portion of their disease, their pancreas was making insulin and did make insulin on its own. And that's when we need to take advantage, we need to preserve their pancreas's ability to make insulin. And we do that through exercise, we do that with dietary changes, we do that with weight loss. As an endocrinologist, unfortunately, I, I tend to get referred patients who are much further along and have had disease for much longer and, and haven't been able to make those lifestyle changes. Those are the patients who we still call type 2 diabetes patients, but functionally, their pancreas is sort of worn out. <laughs> their pancreas has said, huh, 
can't do this anymore. And they're not making a lot of insulin and it becomes a much more complex problem. So, you know, we want to attack the disease and really work to stop the progression of the disease as early as we can. The beta cells are the cells in the pancreas that make insulin. You only have so many beta cells. And once you have diabetes, you start to lose beta cells at a, a very rapid rate. We want to preserve as many of those cells that make insulin as we can. And the most effective ways to do that are through exercise, diet changes, and losing weight. So the beta cells get very, very exhausted and they're unable to make the insulin that we need to cover all our receptors. And we have a lot of receptors because we've gotten so big. Correct. So let's talk a little bit about the person who goes in to see their doctor and maybe they're 10 or 15 pounds overweight and they have a fasting blood sugar, which should be by current recommendations, less than hundred, but their fasting blood sugar is 110. Okay, 115. Now, sometimes, of course, we know that this can be due to actually fasting. You can get fasting-induced hyperglycemia. When I see that and somebody's overweight, though, my antenna is up. You probably are a pre-diabetic or have what we also call metabolic syndrome. And so that's really, if we can catch people right then and there, and really make an impact, we're going to actually change the natural history of this. Absolutely. And the best studies on this were done over 20 years ago, and I still talk to patients about them all the time now, the Diabetes Prevention Program trials. So these were studies that were done in the U.S. There was a, a very nice one done in Finland, and these were done in the late 90s and early 2000s, where we took patients just like you described. So those patients that have elevated fasting blood sugars, we, you know, to put a name to it, these are the pre-diabetes patients who are likely overweight and fairly sedentary. And if we take patients like that, and we, we don't give them really any tools, say just live your life, do your thing, come back and see us in five years, a large percentage of them progress to type 2 diabetes. It's over 20%. They took another group of those patients and they gave them a common diabetes medicine called metformin, said stay on this for the next five years and, and come back and see us, so to speak. And, and the number of patients that progressed to type 2 diabetes dropped. It was much lower than the group that didn't get anything. But the third group in these studies was the most interesting. This was a group that got nutrition counseling, this is the group that got exercise advice. This is the group that then took that exercise and nutrition advice and applied it to their daily life. They worked out four to five days a week for 30 minutes. They lost weight. And we're not talking about 30 or 40 pounds of weight. You know, in these studies, we're talking about, you know, a 10% body reduction goes a tremendous way in improving this. And these patients did lose weight. When they came back at the end of five years, far and away, they had the least incidence of type 2 diabetes. So, you know, medicines can be effective, but in that patient you described, when you're talking to somebody and your antenna goes up and you see, hey, they got a high fasting blood sugar, we're in this pre-diabetic stage, that's when we really want to hit this hard and work on preventing what can happen over the next five years if we don't make a change to their lifestyle. Yeah. And I think a lot of patients, when they see their doctor, maybe annually, I mean, I do this for all my adult patients. I screen them with the hemoglobin A1C as well. As we tell our, our listeners, you know, that's your average blood sugar over the last, you know, 90 days. Correct. And normal depends on which lab you use, but normal is usually under 5.8. And when somebody's hovering 5.7, 5.8, 5, 5.9, they're there. And it is really important to address that. So it's important to address the 
elevation of fasting blood sugar less greater than 100. It's important to look at the hemoglobin A1C, important to look at the comorbidities that go along with this, such as high triglycerides, hypertension. And so it's really a very vulnerable point that really people have to recognize this should be the signal to say, hey, I really got to get serious because hands down, as you just said, from the studies that we know, just making these changes of, you know, good diet, regular exercise, bringing down your weight is really, really helpful. I've really found, and I measure this annually for patients, that height to waist ratio is such an important metric because when your girth is half your height, everything's working. Your blood pressure's okay. Your fasting blood sugar's okay. It's a great thing to shoot for. Patients will always ask, well, what weight should I really be, doc? And I say, let's look at what the weight is when you got your girth half your height. And that usually aligns with this really important thing. Yeah, um, I, I think as a society, what we view as a normal weight is really skewed. I have lots of patients that I, I talk to them and I say, really, a lot of your problems are going to go away if we can get your weight down. And they look at me and say, oh, what do you mean? I, I, I'd look skinny if I was 15 pounds lighter. And I have to point out to them, that's not really the case. You know, when we're when two thirds of the general public is is overweight, it skews what that what normal really is and what normal should be. I think that people really overestimate what they should weigh. Correct. And that's why I think that this height to girth ratio is so important for people. And there's an interesting relationship I'm sure you're aware of, and that is for every inch that you're above your girth, it's about five pounds. So you can really quickly help somebody, you know, understanding this when you say, okay, you know, your girth should be 36 and you're 41. You need to lose 25 pounds. What? Are you kidding? <laughs> right. But it really, it's a beautiful relationship. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted you to comment on is... We now understand that fat is almost like an endocrine organ. It's so active. Yeah. Your thoughts about that? No, very much so. And we spoke a lot about weight at the beginning of this talk. And the difference between muscular weight and adipose tissue or fat is tremendous. If you come in and, and we're having a discussion and, and we look at your height and weight together and your body mass index is, you know, 28, which is in the overweight category, but you are rocked up with muscle, my concerns for prediabetes and diabetes are much lower. Muscle is sensitive to insulin, responds to insulin much better where adipose tissue or fatty tissue does not. That promotes insulin resistance. In particular, adipose tissue within the abdomen that surrounds the organs. So that type of adipose tissue is, can be metabolically active, um, you know, can promote insulin resistance, and, and can be, you know, really worsen this entire metabolic syndrome that you're referring to, where we see, you know, high cholesterol, you know, hypertension, diabetes altogether. It's all driven through this adipose tissue or fatty tissue. That's a great point. And that deep fat, that visceral fat that's in deep in our abdomen is inflammatory. And not only does it promote heart disease, it also promotes cancer. So it's really something that if we can, and that's really reflected by the girth, you know, so that's really something that we can actually do something about. And the real interesting thing that I've found is because it's so metabolically active, as soon as you make changes, it's the first fat to go away. Right. It is exciting and enjoyable to watch a patient make changes in their lifestyle 
and to be able to tell them to stop medicines because they are losing weight, as opposed to having to have the conversation, we need to start medicines. So weight loss, if done early in the disease course, can make a tremendous difference. Okay. So we've covered some really good information about sort of the pathophysiology and epidemiology of diabetes, prediabetes, metabolic syndrome, and just being overweight. So now we want to talk a little bit about well, what can we really do about it? So Mark, what do you tell your patients about exercise? So I spend a lot of my, my day talking about exercise and encouraging patients to exercise. You have to meet the patient where they are. So if your patient, you know, if you're somebody that has arthritis and, and joint issues, um, asking them to go out and run a 10K is not very feasible. If somebody was a former athlete that just got away from it, maybe that is feasible. So we start by, you know, having them pick something that they enjoy. Do they like walking? Do they like swimming? Do they enjoy weights? I'm encouraging them to try and exercise with other people to help with accountability. They have a family member or a friend. You're more likely to show up and, and post, so to speak, for your exercise. If you're paying for your exercise, if you're paying for a class, you are much more likely to go than if you're not paying for a class. And, you know, we start simple. The goal is to get to five days a week with 30 to 45 minutes of activity. For somebody that is not doing anything, that is a ton of exercise. So we might start with five or 10 minutes a day for a couple of weeks and then slowly build that up. But that's what we're ultimately trying to get to. Five days a week, 30 to 45 minutes, a mix of resistance training and cardio. And let me add on that, that I think it's great when people sort of get it. I always encourage people to, after dinner, go out for a walk. Studies have shown you only need two minutes of walking to actually improve your digestion and, and metabolism. So, you know, hey, go out for a walk, even if it's cold outside, take the dog out, take a nice walk. And the more you walk, the more you'll like it. Getting people to get up from, uh, from their computer every hour mm -hmm. is smart. I mean, I tell patients... Why don't you set your alarm every hour during work, get up, move. If you feel like doing some squats at your computer, do it, move, use the stairs. All of these things are so helpful. So yeah, exercise and everybody, anybody who does exercise, they always feel better afterwards. They may not want to actually do it, but once they do it, they never regret it. It improves physical health, but it also improves mental health. You know, patients who are exercising tend to have less depression, tend to, to just have a better outlook on life. And diabetes is such a challenging disease. If you're not in a good mental frame, it's very hard to manage the complexities of the disease. So it's important for a lot of aspects. And I do think when you use the D word with a patient, either you're, you are a diabetic or you're becoming a diabetic, that pretty much shocks them. I mean, it's a staggering phenomenon when you think about diabetes. Oh, it is. And often, you know, I, I'll get patients referred to me and they're, they're not quite sure they even have diabetes. <laughs> um, and I have to show them, oh, yes, you've had diabetes. You've had it a while. And, and their eyes will, will widen and glaze over. Just hearing that can sort of startle and scare somebody. And you don't want to scare somebody, but you want them to understand what they have and the risks of it and that we need to take it seriously. So that's the exercise piece. Let's just talk about diet. Now, mainly for our patients who are developing diabetes, pre-diabetic, metabolic, or just overweight, general advice you have for folks? Yeah, I think the general advice that I give is you need to eat 
less calories and expend more calories, right? We talked about our exercise prescription, trying to get them to be moving four to five days a week. So that's burning calories. I want them to be eating less calories, right? We want a negative caloric expenditure. So you're going to be losing weight. Now, how do we achieve that? You know, with diabetes, certainly carbohydrates, you know, really do drive up blood sugars. These are your bread, your pasta, your rice, your noodles, potatoes. I never tell someone to eliminate those. We don't want to eliminate food groups, but we want to limit those carbohydrates. In general, most patients with type 2 diabetes, we're aiming to keep the amount of carbohydrates in a meal you know, less than 45 to 60 grams of carbohydrates in a meal, depending on patient size and uh, age. And not all carbohydrates are created equal. When I tell someone, you know, hey, I want you to try and limit about 45 grams of carbohydrates in a meal, and they pull up two glasses of orange juice and go, well, doc, you know, a glass of orange juice is 22 grams of sugar. You told me I could have 45 grams, you know, that's 45 grams of straight sugar, right? So we want to focus on getting complex carbohydrates, our grains, our high fiber carbohydrates. And reason being, these are slowly digested in the stomach, slowly digested into the small intestine. And we get a slow absorption of sugar into our blood that our pancreas can then respond to. If we throw you know, a Pepsi Cola into our stomach or eat a bag of Skittles, those are simple sugars that are quickly digested, quickly through the stomach into the small intestine, don't take long to break down within the wall of the small intestine and are rapidly in your blood. And your pancreas has no chance to catch up at that point. So I focus on eating smaller portion sizes, lower calories, and limiting the carbohydrates. Yeah, that's great. And, and I do the same with my patients. And sometimes I talk to them about the glycemic index. You know, I like people to eat low glycemically. But the other thing we didn't talk about that I, I've employed with some success is time-restricted eating. So, you know, or some people call it intermittent fasting. And one of the things I always like to point out to people is that nothing really good happens beyond metabolically beyond about eight o'clock at night. Right. So stopping to eat, you know, no later than eight is really smart. And of course, what you eat, the lower glycemic index, the better off you are. So staying away from candy, cookies, cakes, juice, soda, you got to do, even if you don't have diabetes, it's not good for you because you just get this big insulin rise. And when insulin levels are high, you store fat. When insulin levels are lower, you can burn fat. And as you said, the complex carbohydrates, nothing wrong with whole grains and beans. Right. Great, right. right? So the trying to eat an early dinner helps. There's a saying in diabetes, eat breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, and dinner like a pauper. So you want your largest meal of the day to be earlier in the day and your smallest meal of the day to be your last meal of the day. What do we do as Americans? We typically grab a cup of coffee for breakfast, you know, grab something on the go for lunch, and then we have a huge late dinner. And then we go right to sleep after that dinner and our blood sugars stay high overnight. So I like the concept of eating an earlier dinner, making dinner not the largest meal of the day. And as you mentioned, you know, getting out, taking a walk after dinner, um, get out, be active, move, that helps bring down blood sugars. Intermittent fasting, which you alluded to, there are good studies that show there are metabolic benefits from intermittent fasting. There are some caveats with it. I am very 
leery of it in patients who are on any medicines that cause hypoglycemia. So if you have diabetes and you're on insulin or you're on a medicine class we call sulfonylureas like glipizide or glomeparide, talk to your doctor because uh, you can get yourself in trouble if you, if you do intermittent fasting. If you're not on medicines that cause low blood sugars or hypoglycemia, the concept itself just makes general sense, right? If you're going to limit the amount of time or hours during the day that you're going to eat, the net of it is you're probably going to eat less calories, which we alluded to earlier, which is important in getting that negative caloric expenditure and, and helping lose weight. And that six, if you are a restricted time eater, like many of my patients do, and I give them a lot of instruction on that, you're getting a lot of benefits from that. You know, when you fast your body, a lot of pathways open up to basically reset your immune system and decrease inflammation, which is what we're ultimately after, which obviously helps with aging. Aging is all about inflammation. And if we right. can limit our inflammation, we can age more gracefully. Well, this is a nice transition into therapeutics, as you've already mentioned. Now, for many people, for many physicians, the first thing they're going to do for an adult diet, an onset diabetic or pre-diabetic is they're going to talk about whether or not they'd be a good candidate for metformin, which is, as you said, a drug that's been available forever and can be very helpful. Thoughts on that? Yeah. So metformin is the first medicine recommended you know, in treatment of type 2 diabetes with all of the algorithms from the American Diabetes Association, the Endocrine Society. Metformin has been around in the U.S. since the early 1990s, in Europe since the, the late 80s. It's effective, it's dirt cheap, and has minimal side effects. The biggest side effects tend to be gastrointestinal. So some people do get intolerable GI side effects, mostly diarrhea or loose stools. Metformin can be very effective because it can help patients lose weight. And as, as we discuss diabetes medicines, and we've talked a ton about weight already, we want to give patients the advantages of being able to lose weight. So metformin tends to be a weight loser in the diabetes world. I'm curious, I frequently have patients come in to me and say, well, I read on uh, the internet, or I read on Facebook how bad metformin is for me. And uh, I stopped my metformin, doc. And I say, okay, let's talk about it. And I, I go through the safety of metformin and such. And I say, pull up that thing you read, and they'll, they'll pull it up, they'll find it on their phone. And lo and behold, at the end of whatever they're reading, whoever is, is putting that there for them wants to sell them their own product, <laughs> you know, wants to sell them their own wonder supplement. So I would be very leery of that. Um, Metformin is generally included in any regimen we use to treat patients with type 2 diabetes. The only caveats generally being if you have bad GI symptoms or you have bad kidney disease, it's not safe to use as, as patients have bad kidney function. Yeah, those are great points. You know, metformin is a very interesting drug because it also, like fasting, induces autophagy, the cleanup of our bodies. So people are using it as an anti-aging tool. And the beauty of metformin also is doesn't cause a low blood sugar. Correct. So you, you can get into trouble if you fasted. I use the line very often with patients. You can take a handful of metformin and not eat all day, and you're never going to get into trouble, right? And we, we really want to avoid the risk of low blood sugars, especially in our older folks. So that's our first move oftentimes if we have to go beyond diet and exercise. So our second move in today's world is a variety of different drugs that we can go to. What's your, what's your go-to after metformin? So the first thing I would say is it's an incredibly exciting time treating diabetes. You know, my interest in diabetes goes back 
to my dad, who you took care of for, for decades, which was how we first met. And in the, in the 1990s, when I was in medical school and my dad was being diagnosed with diabetes, our options were metformin, sulfonylureas like glipizide, and insulin. We had very little choices. And now there are so many choices and we can personalize care for our patients. And that just from a big picture perspective, it's fantastic. You know, I usually reach for metformin first. And then the second line agents I usually use these days typically are the order called the GLP-1 receptor agonists. These are generally weekly injections, although there are daily injections. They're not insulin and they work to alter intestinal hormones that are low in patients with diabetes. They work by slowing down your stomach's digestion so you feel fuller quicker. They help your pancreas release insulin when there's food in the stomach, and they help block the production of sugars from your liver. The net effect of these medicines is that they help reduce blood sugars, but don't cause blood sugars to go too low. They help reduce the A1C. They help reduce weight, which is something we've, we've really hammered during this talk. And some of these medicines also lower the risk of cardiovascular disease in patients with diabetes who've already had a cardiovascular event, like a heart attack or stroke. The biggest downsides of these medicines are GI upset or intestinal side effects. So nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, bloating, cramping, that can be limiting to some patients. And then cost. You know, these are medicines, the first GLP-1 receptor agonist to come to market was uh, exenatide or Baeda. It was a twice a day injection and came to market around 2005. You know, they're not generic versions of these medicines. So they are, they can be costly. So that's one class of medicines I use, you know, a lot. The other class is a, a pill class called SGLT2 inhibitors. These are medicines like Farsiga, Jardians, Invokana. They're once-a-day pills. They work through your kidneys. They help you urinate away glucose when your blood sugars are high. The, the medicines, the benefits of them is, again, you can take a medicine like this and you're never going to end up with too low of a blood sugar. They help reduce the A1C. They help you lose weight, not to the degree that the, the injections do, but they do help you lose weight. And they can lower the risk of kidney disease in patients with type 2 diabetes who have already shown some degree of kidney dysfunction. Um, the big side effects of the that class of medicines is they can make you urinate a little more often. They can be associated with urine infections or yeast infections. And they can give patients a dry mouth because they act almost like a water pill. And they too are not generic medicines. They can be more costly. There is good insurance coverage for these medicines as well. And the SGLT2 medications are really being becoming very important in cardiovascular prevention. Many patients who have had a heart attack or who have at high risk are being placed on these early. And in addition, we're also using these, interestingly, in those patients that have mild kidney dysfunction, because we found that it actually stabilizes kidney function. So it's found a really interesting position in where we are. Now, just doubling back a little bit to the GLP-1s, examples mm -hmm. are Ozempic, Trulicity, that some patients may be on, very effective drugs. It seems like there's an order of magnitude in terms of which drugs are more impressive for weight loss. There are some big studies which showed, for instance, the use of semiglutide, Ozempic, really help patients lose 
up to 20% of their weight over a long period of time. So these are very impressive things. And of course, the diabetes almost goes away when that happens. And then the, the question is, well, do you continue the drug or don't you continue the drug? How do we work that? I think we're still working those details out. Yeah. You know, the the medicines, particularly if we add in all of the stuff we talked about earlier with diet changes and exercise, these class of, of medicines can be remarkable in their ability to help patients lose weight and then taper off of medicines, right? Blood pressure gets better as your weight comes down. Cholesterol gets better as your, your weight comes down. So it, it is, it's an exciting tool because, you know, so many of the older medicines we have and we, that we still use in patients with diabetes are not, you know, what I would classify as weight losers. They were weight gainers, right? right. So insulin, people gain weight. Those cephalonureas, people gain weight. Older medicines like Actos or pioglitazone are very effective, but people gain weight. And then that value added aspect of the weekly injections like the GLP-1s and the pills, the, the SGLT-2 medicines, their ability to help lower the risk of heart failure, kidney disease, and, and coronary artery disease in patients with diabetes is just fantastic because what kills patients with diabetes, right? Patients with diabetes what ultimately kills them is heart attack and stroke. You know, what causes problems in patients with diabetes? It's, it's kidney problems and kidney failure, right? So if we can have that value added to use medicines to control blood sugars and lower the risks of those complications, um, it's just a wonderful options that we have now. Yeah, it's, it's a tremendous game-changing time. So we have just about a, a minute left, but I do want you to comment on the new kid in town, which are the GIPs. And that's in addition to the GLP-1s, maybe even more effective. We'll see. Yeah. So there is a new medicine called terzepatide or Manjaro. It is a, a mixed drug in that it is a GLP-1 receptor agonist, but it also targets another intestinal hormone as well. It is a weekly injection similar to Ozempic and Trulicity and Bidurion. The medicine was just approved by the FDA in 2022, so it is a newer medicine, but the study data on A1C reduction is impressive. The study data on uh, weight loss is very impressive, and they will be publishing their data with regard to cardiovascular outcomes, which we look forward to getting as well. But again, another option, another medicine that, that we can use in the armamentarium to aid our patients to, to have success in, in their, their battle with diabetes. Great. Well, let me just tie this up a couple of messages for our listeners. So when you see your doctor and you have a fasting blood sugar and your blood sugar is not quite right, maybe it's over 100, really pay attention to that because that could be your initial red flag that you really have to do something. And the something can merely be perhaps getting into an exercise program and changing your diet. And if that's not working, working hand in hand with your doctor, start looking for other remedies because this is a huge, huge problem. In fact, I think the United States spends about over $250 billion a year in diabetes care. If we could just reduce that by 10%, that's a huge savings for our economy and uh, it could be used for better things. Well, Mark, this has been great to have you. It's been our pleasure. I so appreciate your time and look forward to further discussions down the road, because this is the big issue for America. It's that we are one out of three people 
have prediabetes and perhaps many of them don't know it. So it's been my pleasure. This is Dr. Harry Oaken for the Columbia Association sponsored podcast, Finding Your Wellness. Thanks for listening. And you can tune in at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com. I'll say that one more time. Tune at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com. Thanks again for listening. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.